Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. Welcome to the ambient sounds of the Living Church Podcast. Sharpening pencils. Sipping water. This is what podcasts are all about. My guest today, Annette Brownlee, just emailed me and she said she's running a few minutes late because she has to change rooms because instead of birds outside her window, someone is using a power tool outside her window. It's only a matter of time anyway until someone starts using a weed whacker outside my window. So it's all good. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners, to episode 87 of the Living Church Podcast. As you've already heard, my guest today is the Reverend Dr. Annette Brownlee. Who is she? Why am I having her on the show? Well, frankly, I would be the lucky one if she had a show and she had me on it. I have friends at Wycliffe College, a theological school that forms many Anglicans and Christians of other traditions in Toronto, Ontario. And I have friends who have graduated from Wycliffe College and someone who I know to have been an influence in their lives as clergy and clergy in training, whether they're serving in the Episcopal Church or the ACNA or elsewhere, is Annette Brownlee, chaplain of Wycliffe College, director of field education, and professor of pastoral theology. She is the person whose door, in her own words, people knock on and say, can I come talk to you? She is someone that I have wanted to talk to for some time, and I finally got a chance to get her on the other side of the mic to ask her what it takes to nurture and disciple people who will very soon be leaders in God's church, many of them in the beautiful and broken family we know as Anglican. We talk together about how training young ministers to be effective means teaching them to be rooted and ecumenical. In a school where Episcopal and Catholic students are learning Greek elbow to elbow with reformed ACNA and non-denominational students, what happens in this kind of context? 
And how can the challenge and opportunity it presents be pressed into formation? What? What was that? You're you're not into corporate prayer? Well, you need it. So crack open that prayer book. And you, you are in love with the BCP, the liturgy. You are oh so reverent with your verses and veils. That is wonderful. Now you go sing praise songs and help serve soup at that storefront church. Much of what we will talk about today also centers on teaching seminarians early to value and know the power of the Holy Spirit in the quotidian and the small. Because so much of parish life, and indeed our life as creatures, right, is made up of exactly this kind of small dailiness. And if moments of heroic decision or action ever come for any of us, they'll depend on what we did without being noticed. The decentering of ourselves and learning the art of humility. That is something that we could all benefit from. Before coming to Wycliffe, Annette was in full time parish ministry for many years. She currently also assists and preaches at St. Paul's Lamoureux in Scarborough. Her research interests include the multiple implications of preaching scripture as the church's book, Augustine's pedagogy as a rule of life for preachers, the sermons of Andre Trocme, and a model of theological reflection based on the Spirit's use of Scripture in the church. She is married to Ephraim Radner, and they have two children. Now, strap on your knapsack, zip up your anorak. We're going to Canada. We may even see a bit of what the future of Anglican formation looks like. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Amber. Hi, Annette. Oh, Hi, it's so friend. good to see you. I'm sorry you had such a hassle with someone using power tools outside your window. I'm on the second floor and there's a, 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 a road on the side of the building that the university has been paving. So they've got one of those big drills cutting cement. Lovely. Well, can you tell me just how are things in Toronto right now? How are you these days? Um, they're well. They're, it's gorgeous weather. And, you know... We're sort of back in terms of something more familiar post-pandemic. Toronto had some of the most extreme COVID restrictions, or Canada did. Mm. So it's nice to be back in the classroom. Nice to have our full rhythm of the chapel services. It's a little hard to really, really have chapel over Zoom. So now we're back to our full rhythm. Excellent. Annette, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's a joy. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Amber. You're so welcome. I have many friends who've gone to Wycliffe. And the first thing I just want to say is that I feel totally jealous. It just sounds so much (laughs) like a Christian Hogwarts. Am I wrong about that? No. And our building was really old. I affectionately call shabby Harry Potter. So it really is a kind of Hogwarts in the middle of a vibrant, diverse city. We are quite literally smack in the middle of the city and smack in the middle of one of the largest public universities in North America. Well, that's not helpful, Annette. I can't go back in time and do this over again. No, we got lots of other degrees you can do, Amber. Okay, we'll talk about that. After the interview, we'll talk about that. Annette, would you please start us off by telling me about your particular journey into ministry, specifically into chaplaincy, you have this ministry to ministers and future ministers. What was your journey 
here? So I was in full-time parish ministry in the United States for 20 years. I took over a dead parish in Stamford, Connecticut. When I was two years out of seminary, the bishop told me later after I left that, I was there for almost 10 years, that they figured I was young enough. So if it failed, I would have enough time to recover. Okay. It wasn't told that at the time, but we did. We grew a parish in Stamford, Connecticut. I was in inner city Cleveland. I was in Southern Colorado, all very different contexts for ministry. And then around 2007, I came to Wycliffe. And I came here with my husband, Ephraim Radner. George Sumner was principal and the students had been asking for a chaplain. Hmm. And the principal was kind of the chaplain and no one wanted to go talk to the principal for some odd reason about <laughs> things. Anyway, so I was hired as chaplain and I, I, being a chaplain at a seminary is very different than being a chaplain in another kind of institution. It is much more similar to congregational ministry. It has a very strong liturgical and sacramental component. We have 10 services, morning prayer, prayers in the evening, a weekly Eucharist. And so I really think of it very differently than I would hospital or other prison chaplaincy or whatnot. And I remember saying to George, George said, think about this as your parish. Wycliffe is your parish and you're the, the rector. And I said, well, George, if I'm the rector, what does that make you? Very affectionately. So I just kind of never plan to do this. It just was one of those God things. I ended up here. So I've been here for 15 years and I have, I wear a lot of hats. I'm responsible for the chapel life at the uh, pleasure of the principal, who of course has complete authority over the chapel. I teach pastoral ministry. And I also more recently in the last 10 years, organized field ed, but I'm the go-to person people, you know, they knock on my door and say, can I talk? Mm. And I do a lot of discernment, which is just, you know, great, right? Right, right. And to go a look back a little bit, when you said George, you're referring to George Sumner, who is now the Bishop of Dallas, but who is the yes. former principal of Wycliffe. Correct. Okay, just Correct. to give our listeners a little context. Yes. And speaking of context, would you like to tell me a little bit more about Wycliffe as a place, how it situates you? What's particular about it? Yes, and it really is a very particular context. And when in this podcast, when I talk about Episcopal or Anglican seminarians in ministry, I, I've been doing that in Wycliffe's context. So, and it's also a Canadian context, which is different than the U.S. for lots of reasons. One of which is Wycliffe is one of seven seminaries there's an umbrella group called the Toronto School of Theology. So we have seven seminaries, Anglican, Presbyterian, Roman Catholic, United Church of Canada, that are part of the University of Toronto. So we are literally federated with one of the largest public universities in North America. So our students get a diploma from both Wycliffe and the University of Toronto. So coming from the States, that's very different. Um, we are very ecumenical at Wycliffe. And then if you add on Toronto School of Theology, it's ecumenical sort of times two. Our students are come from various Protestant Reformed backgrounds. We have a few Roman Catholics. And so 
Episcopalians are learning in classes with Baptist colleagues mm. or Pentecostals or several non-denominational backgrounds. And it's just a very rich way to learn. And then you're, we're in the middle of a very diverse city. This used to be, it might still be considered the most diverse city in the world. So you hear all sorts of languages on the streets. Students do field ed in context. The church I help out on Sunday mornings has service, services in English, Tamil, and Mandarin. Hmm. So that's not unusual. So it's, it's really kind of a great, great, wonderful place to learn. Wow, that's lovely. I would love to talk to you today, Annette, about the ministry that you have to Episcopalians and to Anglicans in the same place. And when I say Anglican, I mean Anglican Church of Canada, all the way to, you know, I'm sure you get ACNA students. And this is really unique. And we also get Anglicans from other countries. And Anglicans from other countries as well. So a global Anglicanism. And you're ministering to future ministers who are going to be going to all of these different contexts to be pastors, to be ministering in different ways, lay ministers also. So I want to ask you some specific questions about that, but also some more general questions about ministering to seminarians or to people in divinity school. So first of all, what would you say are the top three expectations that seminarians are bringing with them, realistic or not, into seminary? I think a lot of Episcopalians, Anglicans, and probably other people, but we're focusing on them, bring with them to seminary a sense that there's a certain way to be a Christian, and maybe only just one way. And they, I think that's something, hopefully, that through their classmates, particularly in an ecumenical seminary, through working in different congregations, through reading the history of the church, they will realize there are many ways to be a Christian. And they can hold the way that they hold dear a little bit more lightly. So that is the first thing. I think hopefully their world will expand about how to be a Christian. I think the second thing and is the expectation, or at least the assumption, whether it's articulated or not, that ordained ministry is quite similar to being a parishioner. And it is not at all. And many people have had some wonderful experience of church or wonderful experience of a small group or wonderful experience of a parachurch organization Something about the power of the gospel through the church has grabbed hold of them, and they are now in seminary, which is just wonderful. We rejoice. But that's not the church in all of its breadth, in all of its sort of banality. And ordained ministry is very different than being a parishioner. Um, And most people don't learn that until they've been in parish ministry for quite a bit of time. And just to expand on that, I think, and again, I'm talking about my own experience, but I think those who come to seminary have had some powerful experience of Christian community. They've had the the gift and grace of being with very committed Christians. And that's not everybody in the congregation. 
Right. A lot of people in congregations don't know what they think. Mm. Or we might consider them lukewarm. Or they're not sure why they're there. Or they really don't want to grow their faith. Mm. And we're called to serve, love, and proclaim the gospel to everybody. And that's a lot different than the experience of, I think, of people who are now in ministry. Mm-hmm. So that so that second point, ordained ministry, is very different than being a Christian. And then I think the third thing is people come with a lot of confidence in the power of our liturgy. For better or worse, and I have students this term who, you know, come from traditions where they just long for that. Mm-hmm. We all know, you know, the Canterbury Trail. There are certainly more students graduate as Episcopalians or Anglicans from Wycliffe than enter, right? So I don't want to negate that. They're looking for something with deep historical roots. They're looking for things that protect the reading of the scripture. So, but I think as Episcopalians, we can rest too easily on the power of our liturgy. I would like to ask a follow-up question that pulls together the first two points that you mentioned. And I wonder if there are ways of being Christian that you encourage seminarians to explore or to embrace or to consider, especially in light of their journey, for many of them, moving from parishioner to clergy status. So if they come in with an expectation that Christianity, my way of living it or teaching it or my way of being in community is the best way to be Christian, are there any ways that you find yourself repeatedly encouraging students to consider or explore being Christian that help them to make this move from a parishioner to a mature and maturing clergy person? The the two ways that come to mind, Amber, reflect various hats I wear, one of which is in their field education. They do quite a bit of field education at Luca. They do basically three different placements. Two are during the academic year. One is in a full-time summer is to spread their wings, you know, to, to be in an expression of church that is not their happy place, that is not their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And that can, in the summer, possibly include international ministry, which is really great. We had students go to Cairo. I had a student in Turkey and, oh. and Vienna this past summer. But even more locally, because of the, the size of Toronto and the breadth of the expressions of the church here, there is that opportunity You know, get out of their comfort zone and, and to do it with humility. I think that's just in terms of a way, I mean, there, there are practical things you can do, such as, as I said, place students in an expression of the faith that is that is will encourage them to expand their horizons, but also to, to really stress the virtue of teachability, to trust your own roots in Christianity and to trust the power of the gospel to the point you can hold your expression like. And the other thing, surprisingly, is the practice of daily prayer and the practice. I mean, for some of our students, corporate common prayer is a very new thing. Yes. You know, so obviously that's one of the great gifts of Anglicanism 
But for some of our students, Anglican, Episcopal, or certainly otherwise, the idea of praying with others as absolutely essential to one's formation is a very new idea. Yes. It feels, as someone who came from a Pentecostal background, my initiation into this kind of prayer before realizing over time that this was essential and good for me, it's that my initial impression was, this is dry. This is rote. Jesus is not close to me the way he's close to me when it's me and Jesus in my prayer closet. I don't have the freedom of expression in worship or prayer here as I would if I was alone. So I understand many of those ways that people who are new to corporate prayer, especially in an Anglican or Episcopal context, can really balk. Not that it's never dry or not that you never feel restricted in your expression, but also it's kind of not about you. So yeah, corporate prayer can be a struggle. And it it occurs to me too, in that this is a very quotidian thing. And I wonder if you expend some effort to teach students who are really on fire, who are coming in eager to learn about the Lord and do their work and find their place, teaching them the benefit of, of the quotidian, really. Oh, absolutely, Amber. I teach a first-term course, I'm teaching it right now, required for MDiv students and open to students and other degree programs called Life Together, Living the Christian Faith and Community. We're just reading Bonhoeffer's Life Together, but actually the mm. first reading I do is Kathleen Norris's The Quotidian Mystery, mm. which talks about this, and it really emphasizes the ordinary means of grace. And I want to say two things here. For some students, that's an enormous relief. Mm. I I was thinking of some of our students who who grew up in other traditions and are now Episcopalians, but they thought that unless they were converting people every day or all the time, there's something wrong with their faith. And one of them said, you know, through this course, uh, Life Together, he said to his wife, you know, I think we need to learn to just be a Christian day in and day out Mm. through small actions. And it was just a relief off his shoulders. Mm. So we talk a lot about dailiness, ordinary means of grace. Some students think, yeah, you do all the ordinary stuff, but the real action of the Holy mm. Spirit is over here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we're going to baptize. Yeah, we're going to do mm-hmm. communion, whatever it means. Yeah, we're going to read the Bible mm. together. But the real action is sitting at Starbucks with my Bible with one person. But the converse of that, Amber, is to go to a prayer and praise service, you know, and actually sing praise songs. And maybe have a kind of service that doesn't look like it came out of the Book of Common Prayer. It's very different than their own preference. And they might have questions about it. A lot of the questions might be really valid. But you have to first honor the people and learn to appreciate their expressions of their faith, even if you don't like them. Because it's not about you. Right. I, you know, I built up this church in Stanford, Connecticut, and when I left it, the interim came in and just sort of dismantled what, how the people prayed Ah. because he didn't think it was, you know, nobody does that anymore. Nobody covers, uses the verse and veil, I could agree, but um, he didn't honor and first say, let me learn with humility and openness 
what's important to these people and how their worship is an expression of it. Thursday afternoon at Wycliffe, instead of evening prayer, we do a joint service with Power to Change, which is a ministry to undergraduates. They meet in our building and they're meeting again now that we're open after the pandemic. And it's probably like campus life in the States. It's not my cup of tea 24-7, but I think it's terrific. And that's what we're called to as, as ministers of the gospel. Is, as you know, when you're ordained in the Episcopal Church, you are ordained for the whole church. The whole church, not just your little happy place in the church or the happy place you and your friends like. And I, I take that very seriously. And I have no patience with students who, you know, say, well, I only like one kind of music. Mm, you know, we're not okay. having music more. We'll do the BCP, the Book of Common Prayer service here, which is similar to the 28 and a praise song and get used to it, you know. There's going to be no music wars while I'm the chaplain of Wycliffe College. It's not preparing students for their ordination vows. Yeah. And it, it occurs to me that knowledge combined with good intentions, but without humility and patience, can just be such a spiritual bull in a china shop when people mm-hmm. go to do ministry. It also makes me think of this book project you're working on about Andre Trocme whose life really was not about this heroic moment when he preserved many Jews from dying in the Holocaust. It, it was about his day-to-day pastoral ministry and the care that he showed in his parish, which in some ways obviously prepared him for this moment, but who's to say you know, what the biggest moment in his life, spiritually speaking, was? It may have been the catechesis of a 12-year-old girl, or it may have right. been helping yeah. someone to die well along with this big heroic act of, of, and that took a lot of courage and spiritual maturity. It was explicitly for him and his co-pastor, Edward Teese, living out the gospel through the ordinary means of grace. Yeah, that's beautiful. Figural reading of scripture is an imaginative, devotional, and immersive approach which understands that the Bible interprets us rather than the other way around. This approach also has deep roots in the Anglican tradition. And on Saturday, October 22nd, the Anglican Communion Alliance in Canada will feature the Reverend Dr. Ephraim Radner in a webinar entitled, The Word of God Endures Forever, Why I Became a Figural Reader of Scripture. The cost is just 15 bucks. For more details, including the time in your time zone, and to register, go to anglicancommunionalliance.ca and click on the events tab. Or you can just visit the link in the show notes today. And we've already touched on this a little bit, Annette, some of the discipleship needs of seminarians. But what are some others that you see? So the need to embrace humility, embrace the quotidian, embrace prayer, both corporate and personal, spread their wings, experience, and be open to different kinds of ways of being Christian and quote-unquote doing church. What are some other things that you've really seen, and, and especially for folks listening who are about to send someone to seminary or have a seminarian or a curate or a new minister in their parish, what do you see as, as some real top discipleship needs of these young ministers? I said earlier that 
One of the great learnings for new clergy is that ordained ministry is not the same as being a Christian. And there's a lot of tediousness to it. It's not only the rhythm, you get up Monday and you have six days to turn it around, but there's just a lot of lukewarmness to it. Hmm. And so you desperately, desperately need to make as a priority investing in friendships, investing in a community of other clergy or people in leadership positions who are going through, who are on your side of the church. And people talk all the time about the loneliness of the parish. It's real. Even though if you're surrounded with loving people who love and pray with you, being ordained is different than being a parishioner. What you carry around in your head is different. And it's supposed to be. So that's a huge discipleship need. I'm going to say one that I think, I don't know if anyone else would say, is learning the discipline of guarding your tongue. Ooh. Yeah. You know, um, I brought in my prayer book to show this to you. It says, who among you loves life and desires long life to enjoy prosperity? That's Psalm 34, verse 12. And then the response is, keep your tongue from evil speaking and your lips from lying words. It's so easy to complain. Hmm. I wonder how many children of clergy have grown up in households Hmm. where they've heard their father, mother, or both come home and complain about members of the congregation, members of the church, the bishop, the diocese, tech, you know, And I think it's a real discipline in this class life together. One of the the things we read is St. Benedict's Rule, not surprisingly, and we read Rowan Williams' book on St. Benedict's Rule, which is a really good one. His and Esther DeWall's are really terrific. His is more focused both personally, socially, and nationally, speaking primarily of Europe. But he talks about what is the currency of different professions. And he, he says the currency of academics is complaints. Wow. You know, you know and because he's talking about within the St. Benedict's rule, and this is really challenging in a council culture, the other person, we are absolutely dependent on the other person for our salvation. And we cannot call anyone else a menace. Like, how challenging is that? Hmm. And we all have congregations that, we would say, man, they would be so much, this would be so much easier if X didn't wasn't here, which of course is the point of Christian community. My husband and I have been reading about Hafez Chaim, which is, you know, long life through guarding one's tongue. And there's a whole Jewish tradition of preventing evil speech, which is so challenging, so challenging. And I think seminarians need to learn this, but I wouldn't certainly limit it uh, to seminarians. I remember the first parish I went to, there was a woman who had literally been excommunicated by the bishop for gossip. That is remarkable. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, they didn't teach me this in a general theological seminary. Wow. She must have had something really juicy that she was spreading around to get excommunicated. Well, I learned that excommunication goes with the clergy person. I didn't know that. Hmm. So I was new and she was 
she could come back. We sorted things out. But, you know, it's so easy to complain. And there's a lot in our world worth complaining about right now. There's a lot in the church. But scripture has so much to say about this. You know, we are called to build up, not to tear down. You know, there's so much about uh, guarding one's tongue. And I think this would be a great discipline for everyone to learn. That's hard, too, because in seminary, this is also an academic place. And you said the, the currency of academics is complaint. So it's funny because you're learning pastoral care and ministry while you're also in this academic environment. So you're you're kind of torn between the two. I felt that myself sometimes when I was in divinity school. Like, am I becoming an academic or am I becoming a pastoral person and a pastoral presence? And they didn't always seem to agree very well. And when you are in an academic setting, you're also learning and developing a heightened critical capacity. And I don't mean critical necessarily in a negative sense. You're heightening your analytical and critical capacities to hopefully, at its best, make your discernment a lot better and your ability to make good decisions that are that are firm and that are wise better. But you've also got this brain that can look at something and analyze it and break it down. And if you're not careful, cut it apart and see all the things that are wrong with it first. I call it editor brain. As an editor, I call this editor brain, which is good when you're copy editing a magazine. It's a lot harder when you're looking in love on a flock and trying to be there for them. Maybe it's because this ministry is dealing with a full human condition. And as clergy, we see the best and worst of people. And a lot of it is Hmm. confidential, wonderful, generous acts of frequently, but not only financial gifts, bravery of people in the face of cancer. Their faith was a gift to me. We are privileged to see that. And we're also privileged to see the pettiness and some real evil. And we're called to bear that. But I suspect most of sort of daily chipping away at people Hmm. falls into neither of those categories, Hmm. right? It's just, life is boring. So I'd much rather talk about you, Amber, than what's on my phone. (laughs) Right? Right, right. Especially in Toronto in February. Oh, man. Students come to me. One of the wonderful things about my position, which is very different than in congregations, is students come to me with advice on their love life. I was going to say, I bet relationship dramas blossom about mid-February. And, and I tell them two things, especially if they're considering or have started to have a relationship with another student. And I, I tell them, take it off campus. This is a huge, wonderful city. Go find a coffee shop in a part of Toronto you haven't been to. Go just explore this magnificent city because your love life is going to be way more interesting than Greek verbs come February. So that's true in the congregations as well. And I certainly made mistakes in the past. I think the hardest situation is where a parishioner is complaining to you about another person in the congregation, and you know what's going on with that person, which would mitigate their complaint. And, you know, you're not at liberty to say. Hmm. 
it's confidentiality issue. Yeah. And this is, this also seems like an extra important discipline when you are in a parish and you're also navigating how or if to be friends with parishioners yeah. and what those boundaries look like. Because you do need people you can let your hair down with. However, how much of your hair? I mean, that's just tricky. I wonder off the top of your head, Annette, if you have a particular piece of advice or a resource that people, even people maybe listening who have been in the ministry for several years, who still might struggle here of, of with making friends and having appropriate nourishing friendships, how to navigate that with people in their parish or not. What would you um, tell us, a student, for instance, who's starting to struggle with that? I think that is tricky. I would encourage the student to find some structured ways of having community outside the congregation, whether that's being on a, you know, a soccer team in her neighborhood or her town or taking an art lesson, you know, some structured things. I think in my congregations, there have been one or two people who can be what I would call sort of bilingual. They can be a friend, but also be a parishioner. I found this when I was in parish ministry, most of the time, you know, I had small children. And so I their friends were in, in my church or our church. And sometimes we carpool and, you know, and you want your children to have friends in their congregation. But people, when you start to talk about the church, you let your hair down around the church. You know, you say, oh, I'm really struggling with this situation. That's very thin ice. You know, that's that difference between the parishioner and being, you know, as I said, that that flipping from being the parishioner to being the pastor or yeah. the incumbent. And one has to, to think about that. For, so for a while, when I was in Stanford, Connecticut, I was in a support group of rectors. And there were about eight of us who were all rectors outside of New York City. I was the only woman. And it was facilitated by a Roman Catholic priest psychologist. And it was really great. And what was interesting, Amber, I was also in a, a, a support group of women and they were all associates. And I had more in common with the men because I was a rector than I did with my dear women friends. You know, I, I love the women friends and some of us were friends outside of our congregations, as you would hope. But in terms of church land, the group that really spoke to me and where I could talk about things was the group of rectors. Even they were all men and I was in a church that was had been dead and was being rebuilt and they tended to be in some very affluent churches in Greenwich and Darien and whatnot. So the role really makes a difference. You have to have friends who can understand you. Yeah, and understand the pressures on you, you know, what keeps you up at night? I think you can have a lot in common with parishioners and, and so much of life overlaps. You know, you're dealing with a screaming kid. You're dealing with a screaming kid. It doesn't matter, you know, what initials are after your name, but friends outside the congregation and structured friends outside the congregation. So here's a story I'll tell you, and then I'll let you ask the next question. 
My husband, Ephraim Radner, went to Yale Divinity School, and he had a group of seminarians. They met Sunday night for a potluck dinner and fellowship. And they've stayed in touch, basically, for 40 years. And we had an anniversary celebration two years ago in New Hampshire. And every single one of the ordained people stayed in ordained ministry for those 40 years. Some are just starting to retire and some are still active in ministry. And there have been some really hard things, you know, and there have been problems with churches, getting fired, deaths of spouses, illnesses with children, the whole nine yards. But I think the intentionality and investing in friendships cannot, cannot be overestimated. It occurs to me, too, that seminary may be a particularly ripe time to form these kinds of friendships. I I also think, frankly, you know, I wish that I could go back in time and tell myself, you know, make I did make the friendships, but also say, you know, look for potential marriage partners. Don't just study your Greek verbs, but also do this. And the reason is because this is such a close-knit community where you have so much in common you may not be in many other contexts like this, if any at all, in the rest of your life. So so take advantage of it. I do want to ask you one final question with our last few minutes together, Annette, and that is about the Anglican communion and Mm. how Wycliffe is uniquely situated. Is there an awareness or how much of an awareness is there among your students about the tensions and, and divisions in the communion? and maybe even the vocation of the communion, so the particularities of the communion, let's say. And if they're aware of it and as they become aware of it, are you finding that there are ways to train seminarians, not only in theology and pastoral ministry, but also in institutional savvy and grace for Mm -hmm. navigating this? So that's a two-part question, and let me answer that. Is there an awareness and how much of an awareness is there? There is an awareness. Wycliffe is orthodox seminary in terms of its theological commitments, although we have a a very diverse student body. I would say for some of our younger, and our students tend to be young, Episcopalians or Anglicans who might have theological commitments that are different than mainstream tech, these aren't their battles. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of the horse is out of the barn on this. Hmm. And those of my generation, and there are some at Wycliffe who've been very involved in the larger Anglican communion, the instruments of communion. This is a different generation. Mm-hmm. And they either decide to be a part of this church knowing its drift. And they will try to live in it because there's enough wonderful stuff. There's enough, there's more that unites us versus divides us. Uh, I don't think, however, they have any expectations that they will be an agent of change in the church or an agent of conserving its values. And you're talking about Episcopalians primarily. I'm talking about Episcopalians and Anglicans. So some of our students here who are part of the Diocese of Toronto, which is a very liberal diocese, have different theological commitments. I'm talking about students in different dioceses in tech who are theologically orthodox in very liberal dioceses. And they 
have chosen to live and inhabit these places because there's a lot of really great stuff going on and these are not deal breakers for them. Mm -hmm. Two questions will be, will their bishops have their backs Mm -hmm. or will a bishop throw them under the bus if something happens or will they be driven out of the diocese? Yeah. Well, we've reached 1150, so I do want to be respectful of your time. I'll, so I'll leave it to you whether you would like to try to answer briefly the the second half of that question, whether you think it's possible to teach them, start to teach them the savvy and grace, institutional, political even, savvy and grace for, for navigating this kind of thing. I don't know if you can teach them that. You can teach them and more so model a kind of grace and charity that they would then extend into that fraught realm. We have an opportunity here to do that in the classroom because they're ecumenically diverse. We have some great spirited conversations about infant versus believer's baptism. And people are can be very passionate and commitment. And the more passionate, the more fun it is. But it's, it's a real chance to model grace and, and charity to your sister and brother in Christ across denominational commitments or theological commitments, you know. And I think that then extends into all other aspects of the church. We are not allowed as Christians to call another person a menace. My life in the church would be much easier if you weren't in it. We don't get, no, no. And so if you model that and you teach it and you more model it, it has to extend into every aspect of our life in the body of Christ, including institutionally. It's hard to think that training in charity would ever be the wrong move to make in a in a classroom. <laughs> you got it, Amber. Well, I've been speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Annette Brownlee. Annette, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Amber. It's been a, it's been a delight. Thank you, thank you for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Now, in two weeks, we will have the pleasure of sitting down with Rector Aaron Zimmerman of St. Albans in Waco, Texas, Yeehaw! about the why and wherefores and how to do it of executive functioning in leadership. How do you not get overwhelmed in daily demands and your calendar? How can pastors know how the heck to sort their priorities and stay focused on that greatest of hearts, the cure of souls? From bathrooms to building campaigns, we will talk about it. Until then, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.